HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, Welcome to the show, folks. Uh, We have a very interesting, really interesting guest today. You know that company that we all rail against called Monsanto? We're going to be talking all about glyphosate today because glyphosate is suddenly very much in the news again. And our guest, Carrie Gillum, is going to tell us all about it. But before then, before that, there's this. Um, uh, joys and sorrows, you know, my little news segment, which at this point is almost always sorrow, (laughs) but you know, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do people? I don't know. Um, anyway, first up in my joys and sorrows segment is the Bloomberg news reports that consumer advocacy groups are suing Sanderson farms, poultry for ketamine or ketamine in their quote unquote natural chickens. And there is the interesting part because they are not suing because there is ketamine and a host of other undesirable drug residues that were found in the chickens, but because the Sanderson label advertises them as all natural. And that's a label that has no universal definition and is thus abused regularly by food companies. Now, why those companies think it's okay for humans to be eating food that is tainted with potentially dangerous drugs is another story and one which we will be discussing in a few moments, though certainly with a slightly different set of consequences because we're going to be talking about Roundup. Um, But the end product is the same. Why are companies willfully using chemicals that have the probability of causing harm even when they know better. That's where the EPA is supposed to protect us, and somehow it doesn't seem to be doing much of a job, as you will soon find out. Um, Second up is John Oliver, uh, the television, you know, English television comedian last week tonight, um, who is really so smart and so funny and so on the money. Uh, He is being actually being sued by the Murray Energy Company, which is a coal company. Um, And that is because he dared to name them as basically the poster child for bad practices. And I will say no more about that because who knows? It's possible the company is freaking looking for people to sue, scanning, you know, their, their name is probably in the Google search thing. And as soon as it comes up, I will probably be the next victim 
here. But this kind of lawsuit, and they sued the New York Times last month, by the way, for sort of the same reasons. Um, but this kind of lawsuit is probably something that will happen more and more as the oligarchy cements its power over us. Um, the suit would be funny if it weren't so scary. I mean, imagine the money that HBO is going to have to spend to defend themselves from this suit. So don't tell on me, folks. You have never heard of this story from me because we don't want to have Heritage Radio Network bogged down in a lawsuit from some crazy lunatic uh, named James Murray who runs the Murray Energy Company. Um, and by the way, that was the company that was... Um, uh, they were sued because they um, you know, had unbelievably disastrously unsafe practices in their mining, in their mining operations and, um, and were just simply outraged when people died um, and then claimed they made up a story that there was an earthquake and that's why the mine collapsed, not because they had unsafe practices. Okay, anyway. Uh, the Raleigh News and Observer has noted that some major staffing cutbacks are planned at the EPA Research Triangle in North Carolina, and that is important for the following reason, which um, just recently made headlines, um, and this is an ongoing story, and there's also another sort of uh, corollary story in Ohio, which I think I mentioned at the end of the segment here. Um, anyway, it was discovered that a chemical called GenX, G-E-N-X, um, which is used uh, for um, making Teflon, they have been pouring Gen X into local river, uh, the Cape Fear River, which is the local drinking water for Mil Wilmington, North Carolina, and a number of others. Uh, Monkey, what the hell was the name? Monkey Junction, believe it or not, that's the actual name of this of the town in North Carolina and another place. Um, anyway, the chemical is uh, very little studied, and it has been used in substitution um, for uh, another even more toxic chemical, which I'm going to tell you about in a second, um, that has been dumped into the uh, Ohio River drinking water supply. Um, anyway, it was substituted for that, and they've been using it for 35 years, and... Um, the star, in an editorial in the Star Observer, the local paper in Wilmington, North Carolina, the company uh, was uh, quoted as dubbing this chemical, Gen X, as a byproduct rather than as a manufacturing tool. Um, and the reason that they are doing that... Uh, well, I'll tell you in a second. But anyway, the chemical company Shimors, the official said that Gen X found in the river is likely the product of a vinyl ether process that uh, takes place elsewhere in the sprawling industrial park site. And that process has been in place at Fayetteville Works since 1980. Um, and the, the Gen X leaking into the Cape Fear is totally unregulated because it is a byproduct of another process. Isn't that neat? Isn't that such a cool way of circumventing a regulation, calling it a byproduct rather than a principal manufacturing product? Anyway, uh, the terms of a federal consent order allowing Shamors to make Gen X requires the company to keep 99% of any emissions from that production uh, from escaping, but exempts the same chemical from any such restrictions when produced as a byproduct in a separate process. I think I just feel like it's amazing. Like wh a lawyer who thought that up is worth his weight in gold. So cutting the staff at the EPA in North Carolina at this very moment is no doubt a breath of fresh air for the corporate structures, but undoubtedly very alarming to residents. Let's keep track of this one, folks. The company that makes Gen X, uh, Shemours, and DuPont, who buys it to make Teflon and other products, um, settled a class action suit recently in Ohio for over $670 million over pollution from the chemical PFOF uh, that Gen X replaces in uh, North Carolina. And I saw a headline about that um, Ohio settlement and the Ohio, I guess there is still ongoing litigation around that um, because that was in the Times today. So these these major polluting uh, industries uh, are really sort of getting you know, away with murder because we are basically losing all of the clout of the EPA. So um, without further ado, oh, one more thing I wanted to mention is, um, did you notice that uh, the U.S. has banned Brazilian beef from the United States? This is in the wake of, of a two-pronged um, scandal that is going on in Brazil uh, at their meat packers. One is that their beef, the beef from various meat packers, including JBS, which owns numerous plants in the United States, um, ha was found to be both... Um, 
harboring high, high, high uh, uh, content of pathogens, um, many multi-drug resistant ones, no doubt. Um, and then the, uh, the sort of ongoing scandal in which it turns out that JBS, the two brothers who were running um, JBS, the Batista brothers, Wesley and Jolie, um, they, Josley, excuse me, uh, they are um, under indictment for bribing the Brazilian government. No doubt to allow them to get away with these really crappy safety, food safety issues. So, um, but let's jump to our sponsor drop and we'll be right back with Carrie Gillum. We're going to be talking about Monsanto and her new book. And um, I'm very excited to welcome her to the show. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Bob's Red Mill is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and a big supporter of organic farmers. Ray and Tom Williams are two farmers who have worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray shares what their relationship with Bob's Red Mill means to them. We thought that for over the long term, we thought it would make sense, better sense for the soil. Also, we thought that... uh, It was something that would improve the quality of the food supply. We're lucky in that we're working with Bob's Red Mill. We're part of a uh, regional food network. Uh, With Bob is a fundamental uh, relationship and cornerstone to that. We also work with other best-of-class people in the Northwest, and we're thankful for the long-term relationship that's brought uh, good things to the soil and good things to our long-term farm economic plans. We appreciate his attitude toward absolutely high standards for the benefit of his customers. We take pride in meeting those standards. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. I'm not sure Bob's has ever been, um, you know, played to to a rap track. <laughs> nice one. Nice one, Mike. I like that. Um, and thank you to Bob's. We love Bob's Red Mill. Um, so welcome to my show, Carrie Gillen. Let me read your bio. Am I saying your name right? G-I-L-L-A. Yes, you are. Gillum. You okay, got it right. Thanks, okay, Katie. Excellent. So here is your bio, which, of course, is the kind of bio that makes me feel incredibly inadequate and insecure. But I'm going to read it anyway, because that's the kind of person I am. Um, Carrie Gillum is a veteran journalist, researcher, and writer with more than 25 years of experience in the news industry covering corporate America. We love you. Since 1998, Gillum's work has focused on digging into the big business of food and agriculture. As a former senior correspondent for Reuters International News Service, and current research director for consumer group U.S. Right to Know, a group that I feel we need to know better. Um, Gillum specializes in finding the story behind the spin, uncovering both the risks and the rewards of the evolving new age of agriculture. Gillum's areas of expertise include biotech, crop technology, agrochemicals, and pesticide product development, and the environmental impacts of American food production. And folks, her new book is Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer and the corruption of science welcome to the show carrie and thank you for writing that book which i cannot wait to read and i can't believe i didn't get a copy of it they're gonna have to send it to me so we can do an interview about it yes after the show october 10th thank you so much for for having me here i tell people i'm a bit of a glyphosate geek now oh yeah Um, (laughs) because i've spent so many years researching that yeah, I love I love people who geek out about stuff. I happen to be a geek about the meat industry, so I, I totally get the geek thing. Um, before we get into the roundup story, I wanted to ask. Um, I don't know if you heard how much of my uh, joys and sorrows segment, but I I've been um, looking into the story of the uh, pollution of Cape Fear by the Shimors, um a chemical company. They've been dumping right. this product Gen X into the river for 35 years, as it turns out. And then when they were taxed about it, apparently they were able to, to fix that in five days. I don't know if you, there was an incredible editorial yeah. in the uh, yeah. Wilmington Star Observer that was just like, oh my God, really? You've been polluting people for 35 years and they really don't know what impact. And my nephew has been living in Wilmington for the last four years. You can imagine his family and himself were a little disturbed to hear that he had been sucking up uh, Teflon 
Teflon chemicals along with his H2O. Um, but I was wondering what your take on that was. And also the, the Times had a piece today about the PFOF, I think is the name of the chemical, that also the Gen X was supposed to re, uh, replace to in replace. Ohio, in the Ohio River Valley. And that they settled, they made a big settlement of like $670 million over that. But evidently, there's some litigation still going because I saw a piece about it in the Times today. Um, right. Which I didn't. Right. That, PFOA. 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 Right. Thank you. PFOA. Thanks. Yeah. I know I had that wrong. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. I mean, my, my response, my reaction is, is, I guess, you know, the same it's been year after year. I mean, this happens all the time. It's yeah. happened for decades, and yeah. it's going to continue to happen, right? We've seen it with PCBs. We've seen it with asbestos. Sure. We've seen it with PFOA. We're seeing it with this new PFOA substitute. Um, these companies make billions and billions of dollars off of these chemicals, yeah. and, you know, discharging waste in surface waters that go into flow into people's drinking water, you know, is 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 poisonous and is dreadful for us to think about. But for companies, they've shown it's really just a cost of doing business. Eventually, they get caught. Eventually, they pay out, you know, less than a billion dollars right. in, <laughs> in uh, settlements, and they go on their way. And they typically do what DuPont did here. They'll, they'll set up a separate company and spin off, you know, their liability into that company and then blame that company. And wow. you saw it with Monsanto and Solucia, you know, and some of their industrial chemical problems. So, Well, you're going to tell us about that in just a second. Um, yeah, but, I mean, this is the way we allow our chemical companies to do business in America. And, um, you know, they make a lot of money. They employ a lot of people. It's a risk-reward ratio, and, um, yeah. you know, a lot of people get hurt. It kind of goes back to, like, um, what I was talking about at the beginning of my um, segment when um, I saw I, – over the weekend, I saw a piece about. I'm sorry to get off track for the, for a minute, but we're gonna go. We're gonna do it anyway. Um, <laughs> that that there's ketamine and all kinds of other. I mean, I've been following the meat industry for you know close to a decade, and you know, of course, one is aware of things like um, you know beta agonists and the antibiotics and the antibiotic resistant bugs. But there was um, I hadn't realized that they were treating, um, for instance, chickens with ketamine, and um, and that there was consi- significant amounts of residue in the Sanderson Farms ketamine I, uh, chickens. And I was thinking to myself like. This, that's part of the same continuum that you're talking about with the chemical companies. The food companies are doing essentially the same thing, and we'll talk about how Roundup is in you know, basically all of our bodies now. But the thing that blows my mind about this, Carrie, is that, you know, yes, I understand seeking a profit. I understand trying to make as much money as you can, but I don't understand willfully poisoning people even when you know you're doing it. Like, I get it if you're not aware but, you know, some of these things you can't possibly ignore, and they just continually ignore them, just like, you know, uh, the meat companies ignore yeah. the effluent from, from uh, hog farms. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why we haven't all had a tremendous revolution. I think that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's talk about um, glyphosate, because you are obviously the Mac mommy of glyphosate <laughs> research. <laughs> Which I'm not sure. I tell my husband when I die, and they put that on my headstone. You know, she knew a lot about a weed killer. Like, you know. I think you know, given what's happening now and the kinds of stories you've been writing just recently, and the class action suit that's taking place out in California, I think yeah. that's going to be a really swell epitaph to have. So, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about? how it was that glyphosate was uh, approved by the EPA and how it has now become the world's most popular herbicide. Because this goes back 30 years or so, right? Well, yeah, glyphosate came on the market in 1974. Mm -hmm. Um, Monsanto patented it and introduced it as an herbicide, and everybody loved it. It was, you know, uh, uh, France, the chemist at uh, Monsanto who um, synthesized it, you know, got an award for it, and um, people loved it. Farmers all around the world loved it because it could kill these harmful weeds so much quicker and easier, right, than yeah. any um, of the herbicides that have been on the market before. And uh, so Monsanto, you know, traveled along there. It was approaching um, patent expiration in the year 2000. I'm skipping over the regulatory part here. We can go back to We're that. We're going to go back to that, yeah. highly right. controversial. But it was in the year 2000, the patent was expiring, so Monsanto brilliantly in the 1990s 
rolled out a series of crops designed to tolerate being sprayed with glyphosate, right? And these were Roundup Ready crops mm -hmm. to go with Monsanto's Roundup herbicide. And uh, Monsanto was very strategic. They told their investors at that time, we're going to see a skyrocketing use of glyphosate and because mm -hmm. of this. And they did. And glyphosate use has surged over the past several years. You know, over decades, there were about 18 million pounds used in 1991 of glyphosate in the United States. You know, in 2015, it was 286 million pounds. That's a giant, it's that's the incredible. most widely used agricultural chemical in the world. Um, wow. So it's a big deal. Yeah, you know? it's very big. Um, and it's not just used on GMO crops. Um, it's also sprayed directly on wheat, which is not genetically modified. It's right. sprayed directly on oats and some beans, lentils, and things like that to help them dry out shortly before harvest. Um, so the result is there's a heck of a lot of this in our food production system and a heck of a lot of it in the food that we're eating, you know, every day, uh -huh. um, presumptively, presumptively, um, because there's, the government has decided not to do thorough testing for residues of glyphosate in no our way. food, even, really? even though they test for virtually every other um, commonly used pesticide that, that they've decided glyphosate wouldn't be tested for. But, and and, and, and um, do you have a theory about why that might be? <laughs> you can be cynical, or you, you know, the USDA and the FDA, who annually do testing. I think the FDA's done it for thirty some years, and USDA for about twenty five years. Yeah. Every year, thousands of foods, hundreds of different herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, etc., never test for glyphosate, and Incredible. they say it's because number one, glyphosate is so safe. Hey, you know, I don't who cares if it's in your food. Super safe. Right. And number number two, really, really expensive to test for glyphosate. Really hard to test oh, for glyphosate. Just so and hard. When we when we have how many millions of dollars in profit perhaps have we made this year? I don't know, but anyway. Yeah. So, you know, <sighs> but and we can talk more about that if you want. I mean, they're clearly the the FDA actually did after a lot of, you know, pressure from um, people like me and consumer groups and then the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which said that glyphosate is a probable human, probable human carcinogen, the FDA did say in 2016, okay, you know what, we will start testing foods for glyphosate residues. It's a little bit. We'll do a limited special project, they said. Started that project, got it underway. Stopped the project that was about in February 2016. They halted the project by September 2016. They said they were having internal difficulties. It coincidentally or not came after an FDA chemist found a whole lot of glyphosate throughout pervasive in U.S. honey supplies that oh he pulled, even organic honey. Um, right. And he found it in, in very high levels in oatmeal products, particularly in baby food oatmeal oh, products. Fabulous. So, you know, so the FDA suspended the program. They just now in June have said they're going to restart the program to try to get a handle on glyphosate residues in foods. But, you know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, my God. So let's jump to the fact that there is a really large, uh, with over 100 defendants, if I'm not mistaken, um, a, uh, in a class action suit against Monsanto by people who, they be who believe that they have been, um, that their exposure to glyphosate has resulted in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Right. Tell us right. a little bit about that suit, because then our, sure. the rest of our conversation sort of follows from that. Sure. And, of course, the lawsuits are a direct result of the International Agency for Research on Cancer's declaration, which came in March of 2015, right. that glyphosate was a problem human carcinogen. The most positive association to any disease, to any cancerous um, cause or disease, is to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. That's what the research shows. And, and of course, some people get confused. IARC did not do its own research. What IARC does is they look at relevant published research, you know, uh -huh. what they consider to be the most robust and relevant research. And that's what they did. They looked at years and years and years and years of epidemiology and tech toxicology research that had all been published and peer-reviewed. And they came to this conclusion that the weight of evidence showed it was a probable human carcinogen, not def not definite, right. you know, not, po not possibly, but probably. And so, you know, that's when these lawsuits started to be filed. People who'd been using Roundup, who 
suffered, you know, terrible different forms. You know, it's a blood cancer, essentially, and it mm-hmm. can manifest itself in many different ways. And um, many people have suffered horrible, horrible, you know, disease and, and death. Yeah. And so there are now um, about, well, there are 1,100 plaintiffs, roughly, that have filed in state courts. And then there are currently 90 lawsuits, and I've lost track of the plaintiffs, 91 lawsuits that are combined in what they call multi-district litigation. They don't call it um, class action. They call it multi-district litigation. Um, And that's being handled out in federal court in San Francisco right now. But they keep transferring a lot of these state cases. And, you know, that is the potential. I mean, the the DuPont um, PFOA was multi-district litigation, you Mm -hmm. know, and it was 3,000 lawsuits. So, you know, this certainly seems like where we're headed with the Roundup litigation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in other words, divest yourself of Monsanto stock. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Six, if they were paid out $670 million, it wouldn't really be much of a deal. That's true. Know? It's I a mean, drop in the bucket. Now, there was a study in 1983 called a chronic feeding study of glyphosate in mice, and this was kind of a major deal because they went back and looked at this study and they resectioned the tumor, the uh, tissues that they had taken from the mice, and they they turned up uh, more tumors than had been originally reported. Am I getting that right? Sort of. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so the reason that I have focused on this and written about this mm-hmm. recently is this could be pivotal in the MDL litigation in California, but it also really illustrates how the science has been manipulated and sort of reinterpreted to favor Monsanto. So this was a study that Monsanto paid to have done. Um, It was not published. It was a secret, you know, secret information that Monsanto turned over to the EPA. They had to turn it over because they told the EPA it was coming, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Sadly, for Monsanto, when they turned it over, it showed a very clear dose response, glyphosate triggering tumors in mice. The, the control group, the, the mice who did not get glyphosate, didn't get any tumors. Uh-huh. But the mice who did got tumors, um, you know, statistically significant finding, dose-response finding. So they gave this to the EPA, and they, and they sent a letter, and they said, you know what, but you really can discount those tumors in those mice because we really don't think they're related to glyphosate. You know, they're, they just got them naturally. And the EPA toxicologist looked at this. You can see this through all these memos and documents. Um, yeah. From that time that we've obtained, the EPA toxicologist said, no, that, that's nuts. That makes no sense. This clearly, you know, shows a carcinogenic response. So they decided to, in 1985, the EPA said, yeah, we're going to say this is probably carcinogenic. It looks like it is. Monsanto fought tooth and nail for years and years and years to get them to change their view on that. And they hired another pathologist, and that pathologist went back, and that's what you're talking about. The right. hired pathologist from Monsanto went back and found tumor in the control group of mice. So that supported Monsanto's notion. Oh, that, I see, that they were naturally occurring. That it wasn't dose-response. Dose response. Right. And the EPA still said, no, we don't see it. That's crazy. And so there's been this ongoing, well, is there or isn't there? And um, so in the lawsuit now, the plaintiff's attorneys have said, hey, well, we want to see those mouse tissue slides, and we'll have somebody look at them again. And, of course, Monsanto didn't want them to, but the judge said they could. So that's where we are with that. But it's it's telling that in rat studies, mice, dogs, rabbits, I mean, you can look at the you know, extensive amount of research that's been done in these laboratory animals come, you know, they have reproductive issues, they have tumors, they, you know, have different um, disease indicators when they're exposed to to glyphosate and Roundup. There's been a large body of evidence um, that's come together, which is why IARC determined as it did, you know, probable human carcinogen. Right, right. I mean, because your piece referenced a number of studies, which uh, to me, you know, were huge red flags. I mean, in 1981, even before the one you're talking about, the mouse study, uh, they saw uh, cancer of the, the testes study. in yeah. rats. And then in 1990, they saw uh, thyroid cancer uh, as well in female ra- in female rats or mice. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what, why do you think, why were those suppressed or ignored? I mean, how did they get away with um, with hiding that information from the EPA? I'm, I'm just kind of like, 
you know, what is and, that? And they didn't hide it. And this is what, and I really get into a lot of this in my book, but, you know, none of this was hidden from the EPA. Mm-hmm. What happened was it was sort of an internal battle. Internal EPA scientists would, would say, yeah, this shows, you know, carcinogenic problems. You know, this shows major problems. And then Monsanto would say, no, it doesn't, and here's why. And then they would argue and they would fight, and the EPA you know, got outside scientific advisors to weigh in on things. And and they chewed on it and chewed on it for years and years and years. And, of course, political pressure comes to bear. This is a very popular product. Yeah. It's making a lot of money. And farmers really liked it, you know, yeah. <laughs> in, in the 80s and 90s. And um, so the EPA, you can see through the documentation how the EPA then eventually would sort of give in, you know, and, and went along with this um narrative that was provided by Monsanto. Um, You know... I was I was struck by um, a few months ago, and I, I sent this to you in the outline. Um, uh, I'm sure you read the uh, the Daily Ag Daily Insider, Chuck Abbott's um, thing. Oh yeah, fun. yeah, he's my so old great. colleague Chuck. Yeah, he's a wonderful <laughs> guy. Wonderful, it's a wonderful newsletter. Um, anyway, he he had a piece about this a couple months ago that I looked up, and um, essentially uh, he reported that uh, in 2013, one of the senior toxicologists at the EPA said in a letter to the now retired deputy director of the agency, Jess Rowland, uh, this woman wrote, it is essentially certain that glyphosate causes cancer, which was a direct contradiction of their 1991 ruling. Uh, and moreover, she goes on to say the following, which is, for once in your life, listen to me and don't play your political conniving games with the science to favor the registrants. For once, right. do the right thing and don't make decisions based on your bonus. Right, if that right. is not the most damning piece of evidence. <laughs> it's an incredibly damning piece of evidence. I um, wrote about that. I, it's in my book, uh-huh. um, of course. The Marion Copley letter, though, right. and I just have to say this because, you know, I'm a journalist, and, you know, unless you got it locked down, you don't know. There has yet to be authentication of that letter. Oh, um, is that right? I've seen it. As I said, I wrote about it. I've you know, put it out there. I put it in my book. It is a very damning letter, but it's not, you know, she's dead. She yeah, died she of died. cancer. Right. Her husband, you know, when this letter first surfaced to the, the plaintiff's attorneys got this letter sent to them, mm-hmm. essentially anonymously. I got this letter sent to me. Um, a couple other people did too, but it doesn't show any proof or any indication that it actual that it's real. So we don't I know see. that. Now, the EPA and Monsanto have not said it's not real, right? I mean, which you think they would. But her husband, when I spoke to him, Marin Copley's husband, he didn't know anything about it. He said, you know, um, so, yeah, I mean, if it's authentic, it's it's a killer. But um, I don't know how I don't know yet how that one's going to shake out. But there's definitely a lot of documentation that's come out. Um, both from EPA and from internal Monsanto documents that have come out through discovery in the lawsuits that um, shows that this this guy, Jess Rowland, who is a high-level um, guy in yeah. EPA, had a very seemingly, seemingly cozy and friendly relationship with Monsanto, wanting to help them uh, with the glyphosate concerns. Right, right. Well, let's. Uh, that brings me up to... Um, um, we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but that brings me to uh, your articles, your two articles, because you had one on June, I think, the 6th, which is the one that made me c- contact you. And then Reuters, a few days later, uh, published an article essentially refuting uh, the information that you had given in yours, but in a in a very peculiar way, which I actually found kind of difficult um, to understand. And uh, and what I thought was really interesting about it is that you then uh, show in a subsequent article what the flaws are in this article by Reuters or from Reuters by what what is her name Kelly Kelland Kate Kate Kelland yeah, yeah t- tell us a little bit about that because that was fascinating I thought yeah and I have to say it it made me uncomfortable really to write that article I've never written an article that essentially tears down another reporter's work yeah. Um, and especially, you know, for the, an institution I worked for for 17 years, I mean, I'm still a little uncomfortable with it. But the article was so such a blatant propaganda move by Monsanto, and and it had to be, and it was so false and so misleading, and it had to be called out. And it has been used by Monsanto, sure, to, to exploit it 
in exactly the ways that they intended. You know, they tried to get California just last week to, to the appellate court to overturn this decision on um, glyphosate by citing this Reuters article. You know, the, uh -huh. they didn't they didn't succeed. But so essentially, what happened is. Um, Dr. Aaron Blair, who was the chairman of the ARC Working Group, was deposed by Monsanto, I think it was late March, um, and it's a 300-page deposition. And the deposition goes through a lot of information about all the different studies that show problems with glyphosate um, and, and cancer and ties to cancer. Mm -hmm. There's one part where Monsanto asks him to talk about an unpublished, unfinished collection of data that was part of a agricultural health study. We, you know, you don't need the details on that, I suppose, but unpublished, unfinished data, and why the group that he was working for didn't finish and publish that data so that IR could look at it, because it showed no connection, really, between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And Aaron Blair says, well, because it wasn't finished, like, we decided not to finish it before IARC even said they were even going to look at glyphosate. It had nothing to do with it. We were working, they were working on insecticides. They got an insecticide thing done. The glyphosate data wasn't even considered statistically significant. It was not something that they were pursuing at that time. But uh, Reuters made this out to be a giant story about, oh, this scientist withheld, you know, yes. information, very important information from the IR working group that would have changed the outcome of the classification and it, you know, was critical information. And of course, if you read the deposition, you see it wasn't and you right. see that the scientists didn't consider it to be and thought it was a ridiculous line of questioning because this was unpublished, unfinished data. And he talked about additional unfinished, unpublished data that showed a two times the doubling of risk with glyphosate to cancer, that they also didn't get to IR because it also was unfinished and unpublished. So, right. I mean, it's just a completely ridiculous notion to write the story the way she did. And she said, and the thing that really got to me is she said that she she essentially implied she got these from court. She's in court documents. Right. These, these documents were never filed in court. So she didn't get them from court. She, right. got she got them from, from Monsanto. Monsanto. And we don't even know if she got all of them from Monsanto because if she certainly if she'd read them all, she couldn't have read the written story that she did. So, you know, I went, I did then get the documents. Um, and because plaintiff's attorneys, once they realized Monsanto had given them to Kate, mm -hmm. they gave them to me. They're not under seal. They're part of discovery. And I just posted them so everybody could read them for themselves yeah. to see how ridiculous this, this Reuters story was. Wow. Well, that brings me to something else, which I found alarming, because this woman, Kate uh, Kelland, um, is part of something called the Science Media Center. And given the title of your book includes uh, the corruption of science, um, I wanted you to take a second to talk a little bit about the Science Media Center, because I think that is a seriously dangerous uh, path that we um, are going down. If the Science Media Center is essentially a press, uh, you know, press relations for chemical companies to furnish um, newspapers and magazines with uh, inaccurate material. So it, am I right in, in characterizing it that way, or was it just this reporter who you think well, uh, could be somewhat corrupted by her associations? She, I mean, the, the, the ties that we pointed out, that I pointed out, you know, it just seems odd to me. She, she did appear in a promotional video mm -hmm. for Science Media Center, and there's a promotional or positive, very, you know, uh, essay that she wrote that um, was published by in the Science Media Center newsletter that talks about how great she thinks they are. So um, now that doesn't make her, you know, part of them, but it certainly shows that she, you know, is closely affiliated. Um, Science Media Center, the largest block of funding that they get, mm -hmm. now they get funding from foundations and from a lot of places, but the largest single block comes from companies and trade groups like Crop Life America, yeah. Monsanto, Bayer, Syngenta, you know, all the big ag chemical companies. Yeah. So you, as a journalist, would really need to be suspect about the information that they're providing, the experts they're trying to get you to talk to. Um, obviously, they have an agenda, but that group is only one. I mean, there are the American Council on Science and Health. I mean, there are numerous groups that have been 
set up and funded specifically by the, the chemical companies to advance their agendas. And yes. that's what they do. And they make it look like these independent scientific organizations, yeah. you know, are, are acting on their own. Um, but you got to follow the money. And, um, right. and so, you know, it's, it, there are so many different, you know, academics. We found university academics, you know, across the country who are getting money from Monsanto oh, yeah. or others. And then they're talking about how great, you know, GMOs are and sure. how safe glyphosate is. And they write editorials in newspapers that consumers mm -hmm. read. And they go on websites and they speak to college students. They never mention that, oh, by the way, you know, I we just got a check for $25,000 into my account for Monsanto. You know, mm -hmm. they don't mention that. No. So, um, no, it's it's, it's very alarming. I mean, I find the um, the fact that that so many universities are essentially beholden to large companies, uh, especially the extension schools, the agricultural schools, are so beholden to these companies for money for research and development. Um, you know, and and there nobody is is really crying about the the conflict of interest inherent in that kind of funding, and and you know the fact that we really, in order to have pure science, we have to have completely independent funding for science and that means the public has to pony up and you know people you know no taxes we don't want to pay any taxes <laughs> right i mean that's true that's true corporate you know and spending for public um education and higher level and research at these um land-grant universities you know is is in decline and has been in decline and the yeah. corporations have stepped in and made some very generous you know, they spread a lot of money around through our universities, and they and they get control over the research um, yep. through that, and and or influence, perhaps, is a better way to say that. Over well, the no, I, I think there's definitely a lot of uh, it's more than influence. I think that information that is um, not beneficial. I, I've heard from many a university professor that research that they had worked on had been suppressed or had mm -hmm. been. Uh, I, for example, there's a guy at um, Texas. Texas Tech named Guy Lonergan. Do you know him? He works in the uh, he works on the cattle industry, um, and he did he published a paper a few years ago <coughs> about the use of ractopamine, which is a beta agonist that is used for growth promotion. In oh right, hops right, and cattle. yeah. And he was able to show uh, that there was a correlation in morbidity uh, between the use of ractopamine and uh, cattle deaths. And that study, which, uh, you know, he spent years developing, uh, was completely discredited by Elanco, the uh, drug manufacturer that produces rectopamine. Um, and his reputation was kind of smeared in journals, journal, you know, in, in um, uh, mm -hmm. in, in industry circles. Um just because he had found something that they didn't like, so that 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 study was obviously um, you know immediately sort of countered and and if not fully suppressed, it was certainly discredited um, by the by the folks at uh, Elanco, and that to me was just like oh my god, wow, you know, and this guy's a straight oh, shooter, yeah. you know, and he's you know it's very hard. Not but that's <laughs> that's the playbook. I mean, that, yeah. you can see that. You can see it in my book. You can see it in articles people have written. That's the playbook, and it yeah. happens over and over and over. If a scientist tries to actually come out with anything that's not favorable to industry, yeah, he, you know, he's going to get discredited. He's going to lose funding. He's yeah. going to, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And there's a numerous, and not just scientists, journalists too. Sure. And, I mean, the, the, Monsanto helped set up a whole website called Academics Review mm -hmm. um, that we uh, at U.S. Rights to Know got email documentation, internal records showing. You know, and they say, right, we don't want people to know we're behind this, but huh. they wanted to set it up so that that could be a vehicle for different people to write articles tearing down journalists or scientists sure. or others and propping up industry interests. Um, yeah while looking to be completely independent. So, That's right. You know, but, it's yeah. part but, of the game, part yeah. of the playbook. Well, uh, t tell us, just for a few minutes, uh, tell us about U.S. Right to Know, because I, I meant to ask you that at the top of the show, and um, and now we're at a point where we can actually talk about that because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good thread yeah. to follow here. Yeah. What are you, so tell us about the organization and what you're doing. Yeah, so we're still really young, right, and really small. Um, I just came on board in January 2016, mm -hmm. and, you know, um, so year and a half, 
And what we do really is we are trying to educate consumers and trying to give them information that they wouldn't normally get because they're so inundated with the corporate message and the advertising and the PR and the websites and the academic sort of, you know, spin and articles like Reuters. So what we try to do is not, it's not to advance the, the chemical industry really likes to say we're sort of some activist group or something, but we don't. Our, our mission is really to provide truthful and transparent information to consumers about the food system. Mm-hmm. So we file a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests. I am so awash in <laughs> documents right now from the EPA, it makes my head hurt mm-hmm. because I, I have a thousand I got last week that I still have to go through today. So, you know, I file freedom of information with FDA, USDA, EPA. My colleagues file them with universities. Um, we do research. We travel. We talk to scientists and farmers and consumers. I met with food company executives last week um, to really just try to bring information to consumers that they wouldn't otherwise have so that they can make informed decisions, you know, when they buy things or with policies they want to support. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, and, and more power to you. It's like, you know, smoker, it's like anything else. You know, if you decide that the reward is worth the risk, and you know, that's great. Sure. But we, we think that in a democratic society, you really do need to have as much factual information, as much balance to the, you know, to these issues as possible. So that's what we're trying to do. And we were started with money from the Organic Consumers Association. Um, but we've drawn funding now from various, you know, foundations and, and others who are interested in health and fitness issues and uh-huh. sort of environmental issues. And um, so, so how do how do consumers access your information and the, and the and the campaigns that you are on? Can we go to a website, US Right to Know? Yeah, and yeah. So read about all the US, things that you were studying. USRTK, okay. USRTK.org, You mm-hmm. know, www.usrtk.org, and uh, we have a whole. Website looking at different things, sweeteners, you know, and children's issues, and um, and glyphosate, of course, is a big part. Um, the CDC and Coca-Cola and some of the, well, I mean, that's a whole other thing, you know, the the beverage industry and the coziness, the CDC looking mm-hmm. at sugar and obesity research and stuff. I mean, it's you know, there's a, there's a price we pay in America, I think, for sort of worshiping profit and worshiping, you know corporate advancement (laughs) we we love capitalism um but it does you know unless it's balanced with pretty solid regulation you know yeah it kind of sucks i mean people can get hurt and we're you know the trump administration wants to further cut regulation and erode the epa's ability to do to do things like in you know take action in north carolina to to regulate glyphosate or other pesticides, they they want to cut that even further. So, um, well, I, I think you know, it, a lot of it comes back to Citizens United, even don't you think? I mean, mm-hmm. the the, oh, sure, the untrammeled yeah. uh, flow of corporate money into the pockets of congressmen and senators, um, I think, has uh, every every bit of. Um, you know, is, is a huge part of this problem now because it does seem to be more now than ever. Um, but it's also, at the same time, we seem to want to know more than ever. Um, and so I, I have no doubt that your, I mean, your research shows that these kinds of issues have been ongoing for 30, 40 years. I mean, Maren McKenna is coming out with a new book called Big Chicken. Um, and, you know, <laughs> she's, the, she's the poster child for antibiotic-resistant reporting. And that right. goes back to the 1970s as well. I mean, you know, and your your glyphosate research. Uh, and what other things have you written about that have to do with... Because I've seen your byline in the Huffington Post, but I, I don't think I had ever seen it before in uh, Reuters, which just shows you how ignorant I am. No, but, well, I mean, you know, as I said, I've been a reporter for more... I say more than 25 because I don't like to actually say how long I've been. And it's <laughs> always been covering corporate America, you know, mm-hmm. banking and uh, the healthcare industry and... Right. Um, I was on the campaign trail with Barack Obama in Iowa during the first, you know, first campaign. And so I've, I've been around, I've seen a lot, but farming and food is really what I've done for the last 20 right. years or so. And um, it's really important. And people, I just want to make this point, people, the reason people need to care is because it it matters to our health and to our sustainability of our environment. There's no doubt. The EPA acknowledges World Health Organization, American Academy of Pediatrics, all sorts of, that environmental contaminants yeah. 
pesticides used in agriculture, the PSOA, the Gen X, that stuff is killing us. It's causing cancers. It's causing reproductive issues. It's fertility. It's causing children to have rising rates of autism and ADHD and neurodevelopmental issues. It's eroding the quality of our soil. It's eroding the quality of nutrition. I mean, we are literally killing ourselves because we're letting ourselves become awash in pollutants, chemical pollutants in our food, our water. Yeah. Our air and our livestock, you know, everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we should wrap it up. I want you to tell people about their um, uh, about your website. Um, repeat the name of your book. Um, you're going to be coming back to talk about that because I'm going to. I will email you this afternoon and um, ask you for your publisher, your publicity department, so I can get sure, a copy. Sure, um, of course. No, but yeah, go to my website www.carriegillum.com mm-hmm. and Kerry uh, C A R E Y. Yep. Gillum dot com and and the book yeah is, is going to be sold through Island uh, Press. Uh-huh. Um, Washington D.C. based publisher and then U.S. Right to Know usrtk.org. Yeah. So. We want to to know. Send us. I'd love to hear. People do this a lot. Send me your story ideas, right? Tell me what's happening or questions you want me to ask. And, you know. Great. Great. So. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having uh, me. I have the feeling that we're going to be talking on a regular basis because you're just terrific on the radio. I I don't know if anybody's told you that before, but it was really a good conversation. (laughs) I enjoyed it. That's all that matters. As long as I'm happy. Um, anyway, thanks to my sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Proud to have, proud to have you aboard. And uh, most of all, people remember this is our summer fundraising drive. Uh, if you like this program, if you like any of the other programs on our network, there are 34 other shows. They're all great. Uh, go to our website, press the beating heart, and give deeply of your money and your love, and especially your time in listening to the podcast. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care now. <laughs> Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.